0: Right, I love hanging out with my family, my friends, my people. I love it. Come on, give me a hug. But sometimes I gotta be by myself. I gotta hide, get away from even those that are closest to me. Alone, where it's quiet, I get my fix of this this solitude. Just me, for a little while. Well, I got to thinking, what if there was no going back? What if the solitude was all there was? They say that no man is an island, but they haven't heard the stories we're about to bring you. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Isolation, isolation, amazing stories about being alone. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment.
1: Our
0: first stop. Isolation World Tour might surprise you, because we're going to France, where Snap Judgment Stephanie Foo discovers a really good place to get to know yourself.
2: The impossible missions are the only ones which succeed. Jacques Cousteau. Vous m'entendez?
3: Je vous entends.
2: Bonjour, Monsieur Sifre. Can you
3: introduce yourself? I I am a Frenchman, uh, 73 years old. My name is Michel Sifre.
2: Michel lives in Nice, France. He is a scientist, and his love affair with science began in caves.
3: I began to go in caves at the age of 10. I was fascinated by this great exploration. It's why I became a geologist. Michel was a
2: published geologist by the age of 20 and led spelunking expeditions.
3: It's fantastic to go in an unknown place. For me, I was motivated by that. Discover, discover, discover a new gallery, a new pit.
2: This was the early 60s, and it was the age of scientific exploration. The space race was on, the Cold War was in place, and people were building underground bunkers in the event of nuclear war. They were wondering what the effects would be of a man trapped deep under the earth for an extended period of time. And so, Michel decided he would find out. He'd venture alone, deep into a cave in France for two whole
3: months. I had the idea, like that, I said, well, I go in the cave and I shall not bring a watch. Then I shall live like an animal.
2: He wanted to see what the human body would be like, without social contact, without a sense of time, just going by its most basic animal needs. And to do that, he would live in complete isolation.
3: The idea was to live following your body. You eat when you are hungry. I shall go to sleep when I will be sleepy. If you want to go in the cave and explore, you go in the cave and explore. If you want to do nothing, you do nothing.
2: Michel had a team far above him at the surface who would monitor him by listening to microphones stuck onto his headgear. And every time Michel went to sleep, woke up, or ate food, he sent a message to his team above the
3: surface. When I make pee uh, when I eat, my team at the surface will note the true exact time.
2: The team helped him move his equipment in. An exercise bike, recording equipment, books, a record player. And then, they left.
3: Uh, in one day, I was alone. I, I was not uh, really bored. Uh, I was so excited, you know. I was thinking, I was writing, and also I had a lot of time for make the psychological, biological test. Michel froze all of
2: his urine for future testing and put electrodes all over his body to monitor every waking moment. He even collected his beard shavings to weigh them. This all wasn't easy. It was freezing cold in the cave, and Michel's body temperature dropped to 93 degrees. Giant chunks of ice sometimes rained down around his tent. But even though he was stuck alone in a cave and tethered to a recording cable where he could not walk more than 10 meters in any direction, Michel found that his complete solitude was complete freedom.
3: Freedom is complete, you know. Ah, it's a fantastic effect, you know, to be freedom. you you cannot have in life, you know? You have to go to school if you are young, you have to go to work. I was beyond time for the first time in the world.
2: Still, he was glad to return to the real world. After two months, he surfaced, and a herd of photographers and journalists welcomed him back.
3: Oh, that I remember. When I was out, the sensation of air flooding on me. That was fantastic. The light. Also, the green color of some plants, the clouds, white, the sky, blue. It was a euphoria. It was really uh, extraordinary.
2: Then he talked to his team, and they told him that despite the fact that his body could have operated however it wanted, Michel had kept an incredibly regular schedule. He kept days that were about 24 hours and 30 minutes long. Michel had discovered that humans have internal clocks.
3: I was the first to detect that the human was internal.
2: This was a monumental discovery. The press ate it up and he gained incredible success as a scientist. He got government funding and organized experiment after experiment where he sent others into caves for months. But after a while, people began to criticize him. Why was he forcing others into caves instead of going himself? And so he said, fine, I'll show them. And with the help of NASA, he planned to go down into a Texas cave for six months in isolation.
3: I say, Michelle, you must go back.
2: Michelle had only been married a year, but now the two would have to go six months without speaking to each other.
3: And that gave us some problem, naturally.
2: But she understood his commitment to science.
3: I say bye-bye to my wife. My team helped me to go to my camp, close the door, and no light, no sound, completely soundproof chamber. When we were sure all was working, we cut the line, no contact. chance,
2: And again, he was all alone. Things got off to a bad start. First of all, there were these nasty rats down there, so he shot them with his gun.
3: And after a moment, all the rats were dead.
2: Then after just a couple of days, his record player broke, leaving him with not much to do.
3: When you are alone in confinement, you sing to your wife, you sing to sex. Naturally, you cannot not to sing to that. But curiously, when you are in long-term confinement, you don't sing to your parents, to your friends. You live your life, your small life in your small place. And for a while, that was enough. The two first months were perfect. No suffering at all. No problem. The problem came after the second month.
2: By this point, the humidity in the cave was making all of his books moldy and wet with the pages sticking together. And then, one day, as he was putting his urine in the freezer...
3: That gave me a shock. An electric shock in the heart.
2: The freezer sent a painful shock through him that hurt his heart. There was an electrical leak. Now, Michel was terrified every time he had to open the freezer. He was so depressed, he stopped recording data altogether.
3: I just keep sleep and uh, eat and uh, making pee pee, that's all.
2: Eventually, as his depression grew, Michel entered into a full-blown existential crisis and spent whole days pacing back and forth in the cave.
3: I say, why you do that, Michel? Why are you tied by a cable for months in this cave I lost all my motivation. Uh, then I was broken. I, I live like a prisoner in a jail.
2: It turned out, solitude was not freedom at all. Michel was so lonely that he befriended one of the rats in the cave.
3: I call her M-U-S, Mus. I tried to catch it. I did not want to kill her.
2: For three days, he sat carefully holding a can over a piece of food. Then, Mus took the bait and he trapped her as his pet.
3: It was emotional because uh, for me, it was a companion. It seems incredible. The day later, she made the sixth baby.
2: But apparently, his new best friend had homicidal tendencies.
3: And the day after, I go and see the mouse. She had eaten four of the baby. It was a bad moment. It was a bad moment because I was so happy to see something moving, you know.
2: The only thing that kept him from losing it completely was his dedication to exploration. Would Cousteau just give up? No. He owed it to science to stay.
3: I say myself, Michel, you must succeed, you know. I could not imagine that the small Frenchman I was lost in the desert of Texas could not uh, succeed. I was sure to succeed.
2: The impossible missions are the only ones which succeed. Finally, his isolation was over. Michel's team on the surface told him that the six months were up. Bewildered, Michel crawled his way toward the sunlight. But when he got to the surface, he didn't notice the color of the sky or the air on his face. In fact, after saying hello to his wife, he went back down into the cave. He needed just a little more time to think.
3: I stay alone during a couple of hours just to think to the six months. I pass in my brain the moment of depression, the best moment, the worst moment.
2: Then, Michel said a tender goodbye to Muse.
3: I, I give a freedom to the rat like me.
2: But Michel still wasn't free at all. He was plagued by obligations. He was $100,000 in debt from the cost of the experiment. He didn't even have enough money to analyze the data from the trip. And he didn't have any positive press to help him out. The same day that he surfaced, the Munich massacre took place at the 1972 Olympics. And his story was completely buried in the papers.
3: It was terrible for me. I was completely gone. My experiment completely eclipsed. I was nothing.
2: A few years later, Michel and his wife divorced. He was forced to give up his study of humans and time, and he went back to studying geology.
3: It was very difficult. Life was very difficult.
2: But in the years since then, an entire field of science called chronobiology has sprung up from Michel's discovery. Our understanding of our internal clocks is largely because of his original research.
3: For space research, for submarine, now it, it's become classic.
2: In his own way, Michel had become that great explorer he'd always dreamed of being. And his thirst for discovery still exists. Michel still goes spelunking now, at the age of 73. He even spent two more months in a cave at the age of 60. C'est la finale question, Monsieur Sif.
3: Madame Fou, OK.
2: Will you ever go down and stay six months again?
3: No, 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 no. It's too much. But you know, who know? The first experiment I said, never, I shall never do an experiment again, you know? And I've been again in, at uh, 60. Who know? But it's impossible.
2: Which, Cousteau would reply, makes it entirely likely to succeed.
0: A big bank to Michelle Sifra for sharing his story. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the isolation episode. And when we return, we're going to the Amazon. We're going to jail. And we're going to the basement. When Snap Judgment continues, stay tuned. Judgment, the Isolation Episode. Today, we're exploring what happens to people who are cut off from human contact. And we have no better laboratory for answers than our own prison system. Our next guest, Chris Hulk, served for several years as chaplain in the Washington State Penal System.
4: grew up in a lot of churches where it felt anything but but honest, anything but where you could be yourself. And here is a place where people had no choice but to be themselves and were staring at the consequences of the wreck of their life. But I found something in these rooms that clergy call sacrament. Mysteries that that I could feel. The rooms were like closet-sized, small. The walls were like whitewashed cinder blocks. But they were Decorated with graffiti layers and layers of it. They had invited me to come visit them Many of these men who didn't have family they'd come in and they'd almost drop out of their handcuffs and collapse into embrace with me And we hardly knew each other And so then in the jail with these guys it started to become Fellowship a community that I think I was always looking for So like we'd sit down at this little lawyer's table, but that little table it almost functioned like an, an altar these tattooed men would lay their, their heads on it, and they'd weep. Everything that they'd held to themselves, like pain, truth, it's just like they just emptied it out. They would open up their hands on the table, like wanting to receive my hands. And I was always surprised at how, how reticent they were to let go of my hands. As they told these stories, crying, holding my hands, I just remember seeing the long, clear ointment of snot just run straight down into their laps and onto the table between us, they wouldn't even take their hands away to wipe their nose. Like one time I remember this this Chicano gang members tattooed fists not letting go of my hands after initial prayer and, and keeping an intense, unashamed, sweaty grip. And I never felt a need to slide out of that grip. And I didn't deserve this, but they would just give me the riches of their lives. And they'd, they'd cut the visit short and say, I, I think you got to meet with my cell. He never comes to Bible studies, but I think he'd be down with this right here. He'd like this. A few years into my time here, this became my community. I I started going two, three, four nights a week. And I came in one evening, and the guards at the front desk informed us that there was a new policy, that there was a no-touch policy. And we didn't know how to handle this, because this included the thousands of hugs that men came in to expect in our gatherings. Some confessed to come to our Bible studies just for that embrace alone one hug after another at the door, and a guy who I've never met just seemed really eager to be like, do I get a hug too? These are hardened guys, old grizzly men with beards, biker types, gangster types. They just come and just want hugs. Some would say, we just came to get my fix, man. This no contact policy included how we'd hold hands in a circle. That always struck me as really beautiful, like a chain linking every race and age and offense. We couldn't do that now. And even the regular huddle of men when they'd come in at the end and all put their arms around each other. And each guy would lay a hand on maybe someone sitting in the middle when they were in pain. And and it just looked like these petals of a flower all reaching in. And the center of it was this really broken guy who was just sobbing and sobbing. And the one place where he could be weak, the one place where he could receive such healthy touch and embrace from everyone else. Now that was all taken away. only thing we could do is uh, a professional handshake upon greeting. Hello? I'd kind of bow. It felt so weird. The facility became a darker place that day. No lie, men became slowly more violent. We heard about more fights breaking out, as if it was like men swinging fiercely for some kind of contact. Of course, now if there's more fights, even more clampdown measures were installed. And we were instructed as chaplains to bluntly turn down any advance from any inmate. Cause I mean the guards after all would be watching through the mirrored doors. And we could lose all visiting access if we were found in violation of this. So when when men came through the door and threw their arms open, men we'd not seen for months and whom we missed, we had to painfully like pinch off our, our theology and our our affection, like twisting our torsos away from them like matadors before a stadium of security cameras. And I I couldn't take that really confused, sad look out of their eyes. Then the the one-on-one visits, that was even worse. Before, where it was a really holy encounter in that room, now we would go to the public visiting space. We would sit with a pane of thick glass between us. Instead of hugging, we'd wave, smile, nod, point, mouth exaggerated words, they'd pick up the phone. I'd pick up a phone on my side, but lots of the times we still couldn't even hear each other. Phones not working, we'd mime. Even when the phones did work, everything we said was now taped, was digitally available to the prosecutors. Their crimes, their pasts, their emotions, even the tones of their voice, anything they would want to talk about, it could all be used against them. And I, I just felt like, wow, the confessional booth is tapped. There were no more tears in these visits. It felt like with the glass, everything was sealed up. They'd have to insist on their innocence, even when looking me in the eye. And during that time I felt like, man, when hearts don't have a place to break, they become harder. And I watched that, I watched them become harder. Like goodbyes came much sooner during the visits. And usually they'd end with not some catharsis or blossoming of their heart, it just end with a limp, like unfelt knuckle bump against the bulletproof glass. Later. One of the guys, the head of the gang, he's someone I've really stuck with over the years, and he's in solitary confinement. So I'm visiting with my friend here in solitary confinement, and there's the glass. And I'm worried because he's confirming what I'm watching in documentaries. Like, guys lose their minds in here. There's no contact. It's not just like physical love that was taken away in the county jail. He's alone in a nine by 12 room. Uh, he'd have panic attacks, so I just kept thinking about this pane of glass. What gets through the pane of glass? One of the things that he's asked me to do as his pastor is, can you help me build a relationship with my daughters? They don't know me. One of them, she's four, and can you go build trust with the mom and bring the daughter to come visit me? She's never seen me. So I did that. I found her, we get in the car, we drive for five, six hours across the state he's he's really in for a treat to me what an amazing little girl is his daughter because she's just chatting me up the whole time in the back seat singing songs and i would practice with her you are my sunshine and she just could not remember the words at all so we just try to sing it over and over and over we'd pull into the prison i'd carry her through the metal detector the next automatic door opens this little girl in pigtails patent leather shoes she'd be clipping along the the tile floor with me and so we open the door and she sees her dad for the first time this guy in a white jumpsuit velcroed up the middle tattoos of letters and tears and numbers down his cheeks the name of his gang straight across his forehead I mean something that would be like a terrifying mugshot but she just she just smiles and she just beams at him and I see him just beaming back and I'm watching something really beautiful start to happen something that Feels more powerful than that pane of glass, and she'd hold the black receiver like, like it was a microphone. She'd say, "Daddy," he'd say, "What me, huh?" And he'd be like, "I love you." She hadn't even met him before, and she's, she doesn't judge him. She's not afraid of him. And his face started to get red. And she was really into Justin Bieber at the time. And she'd take that phone and she just started like singing into it, like she was Selena Gomez, and. Her voice is just echoing through the intercom throughout his side of the glass. So he's just like being soaked in his daughter's voice. And and, uh, she'd say, what's that song? And she'd forget the words again. So I'd whisper the words. And then she sang, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. Please don't take my sunshine away. And seeing his eyes just wet and seeing his tattoos blurred under his tears. That's when I saw that the glass wasn't there anymore.
0: Thank you, Chris Hulk. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. different ways to be cut off. And for some people, they don't even know that they're living in a cage. Snap Judgment's Julia DeWitt brings us this story from the Amazon.
5: The Amazon jungle covers 1.4 billion acres of South America. In its most remote regions live some of the last people to avoid contact with modern civilization. And this guy was about to go looking for them.
6: I'm Scott Wallace.
5: Scott is a journalist, and back in 2002 he was invited down to Brazil by famous indigenous rights activist Sidney Pasuelo to cover an expedition into the Amazon.
6: The expedition was going to be heading into a territory that was really previously unexplored in the southern reaches of an enormous indigenous land called the Javary Valley. And there was one tribe in particular, an uncontacted group down there, known only as the Flecheros, or Aero People.
5: But there's a lot more than just indigenous people on the land. There's timber, valuable ranch land, and lots and lots of gold.
6: By law, under Brazil's constitution, if there are indigenous people occupying a given territory, that territory is rightfully theirs. And so in many instances, loggers, ranchers, gold prospectors will try to claim that this is empty space and we're going to go in there and take what we want.
5: Prospectors and loggers would overrun their land unless Pozuelo could prove that the Aero people were more than just a rumor. So the expedition of 34 men loaded down their boats with all the supplies they could carry and followed Pozuelo into the jungle.
6: We had been traveling up by boat up a tributary of a tributary of the Amazon for two weeks.
5: Over the course of his career, Pozuelo saw too many tribes decimated by disease and assimilation. He had a policy of no contact. But as they traveled further and further into the reserve, the expedition was also careful to avoid contact for their own safety.
6: The arrow people are called the arrow people because they have a reputation for fierceness and for defending their lands with showers of deadly arrows.
5: And they had good reason to be hostile to intruders.
6: One thing I should say that in the Western Amazon in particular, that area was turned upside down at the end of the 19th century during the so-called rubber boom. Legions of men ventured into the deep western Amazon looking for wild rubber. And not only were they looking for the rubber, but also looking for labor to tap the rubber. And so they would press-gang entire villages to work as essentially slave labor.
5: The Aero people are probably the descendants of the people who escaped enslavement and massacre and fled into the depths of the Amazon. In fact, it is widely believed that they are still actively on the run from contact. They had no way of knowing what the expedition wanted from them. And if the Aero people decided to attack instead of run, Pozuelo and his men were defenseless.
6: The philosophy that governs Brazil's Indian Protection Service is a motto that goes, die if you must, but never kill. And so, in keeping with that philosophy, the standing orders in our expedition were to fire warning shots only, never directly at Arrow people if they were to attack us. It makes for a very strange and dangerous dance.
5: Their primary means of defense was avoidance, so they tread lightly as they crossed into the territory of the Arrow people.
6: The boats had been left behind three weeks earlier, and we had been bushwhacking through dense, virgin jungle in many places very, very dense. The lead scouts were hacking open the trail and the column. All 34 of us were following single file behind.
5: They were totally out of contact with human civilization for weeks. Then, in one of the most remote places on the planet.
6: We stumbled upon a well-worn footpath receding back into the forest. Pozuelo consulted his compass and said, hmm, let's follow this trail for a little bit. We were clipping along double time on this trail. It felt like, you know, a super highway compared to the stuff we'd been slogging through. But then within about 15 minutes, we came to a sapling, a, a small tree that had been broken off and was dangling by a shred of bark across the trail. Pasuelo drew up short and said, whoa, this is universal language in the jungle. It means stay out, don't go any farther
5: the Aero people knew they were coming. So Pozuelo ordered the crew off the trail.
6: Back into boot-sucking mud and the low-hanging branches swarming with fire ants. And about a half hour later, we came to a spot along the banks of a clear Blackwater Creek. And he said, let's stop here and wait for the others to catch up. Everyone had arrived except these two porters, Wilson and Alfredo. They were missing. Pozuelo ordered a search party and he said, you, 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 go find those idiots now. A half hour went by and they didn't come back. The search party did not come back. We're only a couple of degrees off the equator. It's high noon, but in this dark gloomy jungle, triple canopy forest, so little sunlight filters down to the forest floor that now in my sweat drenched fatigues, I actually started to shiver. We waited and waited and waited, and we had been there about an hour.
5: And the search party was still unaccounted for.
6: The guys that I was with, we all began to look at each other with obvious trepidation that something radically wrong had happened. In the jungle, screams carry only a very short distance they're smothered by the luxuriant vegetation. If something had happened, that's unlikely we could have heard any shouts from anyone.
5: Finally, Pozuelo decided he couldn't just wait around for his missing men.
6: Pozuelo grabbed Soldado, who's his most trusted scout, and he said, everyone else stay here. We'll be back. A short time later, he didn't come back, but the scouts in the original search party did. They had with them a broken arrow with a very large and sharp fire-hardened bamboo arrow point that had been slathered in curare, which is the poison that many Amazonian tribes put on their arrow tips and darts to asphyxiate prey and kill them.
5: The scouts reported that they also found Wilson and Alfredo's footprints.
6: The footprints led into a village of about a dozen very high thatched homes there was smoldering cooking fires, piles of several different species of monkey, tapir, wild boar. There were ceremonial masks made of body length strips of envira bark. And there were a couple of very large clay vats of karari, their poison.
5: But the village was totally abandoned.
6: The arrow people had evidently scattered moments before.
5: The arrow people had packed up their hammocks and their weapons and disappeared
6: the footprints of wilson and alfredo led straight into this village and then out the other side when the footprints just disappeared off the trail and even our indigenous scouts who are expert trackers were bewildered by this they said we don't understand the tracks are there and then they're gone it looks to us like they just got yanked off their feet and pulled into the brush and killed or kidnapped.
5: Then, Pozuelo returned to the group.
6: The forest is almost two-dimensional. You can't see more than 20 or 30 feet in any direction. Pozuelo looks around and sees that this is a very dangerous place for us to be in and says, let's get out of here. We can't stay here.
5: So they put on their packs and they plunge back into the knotted jungle. They stop in a clearing. Soldado fires warning shots and they wait. It
6: becomes kind of a mind game and a mirror game. We're afraid that they're afraid that we're going to attack them, hence they're going to attack us first.
5: Then, into the clearing, walk Wilson and Alfredo. They had heard the shots. Turns out that even though Posuelo had a strict policy of no contact, Wilson and Alfredo's curiosity got the better of them.
6: Wilson and Alfredo had evidently defied that gate that the Arrow people had left, warning us not to go any further, and had chosen to continue on down that path.
5: But when they followed the path into the village, they immediately regretted their decision. They heard the Arrow people yelling from the forest, and realized they were outnumbered and maybe even surrounded so they abruptly got off the trail and also took off running from the arrow people but apparently the arrow people ran too they retreated even farther into the jungle like they have for generations pasuelo now had the evidence he needed to preserve the javeri valley indigenous reserve the expedition could go home
6: it was still many weeks before we were able to get out of the jungle. And we had to stop and build canoes by hand from scratch with only hand tools. Eventually, we were all able to get out of there alive.
5: But before Scott left, Pozuelo wanted to take one last trip back to the village.
6: Once we did get back, Pozuelo wanted to take a journey in a bush plane and retrace the expedition route. So in the course of like an hour or so, we went back over the same route that we had covered on the ground in the course of three months. From that airplane, the incredible thing was that we looked down on the same village of the Aero people and we could actually see them looking up at us. And I asked Posuelo, isn't this strange to see these people and know that they'll never know you? And he said, you know, I prefer it this way, that they will never know who I am, we will never meet, but that I know that they are down there and they are thriving, and that is exactly the reason I do what I do.
0: Thanks so much to Scott Wallace for that story. And this is just a piece from Scott's book, The Unconquered, in search of the Amazon's last uncontacted tribes. It just came out in paperback. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. Seek the company of others. Hold on to someone's hand because in just a moment, Snap Judgment, the isolation episode continues. Stay tuned. walk, alone walk alone. you know I walk alone. Been on my own ever since I was born, so I don't mind walking alone. snap judgment from prx and npr today on the show we're exploring stories about people who are cut off from the rest of the world and it's not just individuals that can be isolated sometimes entire countries are cordoned off from the international community our next story comes from snap favorite gypsy yo
1: like a childhood lived in a communist country under the dictatorship of the proletariat you are taught and you truly believe it you live in the best country on earth in other capitalist countries children like you do slave labor 12 hours a day and they're starving just like in Charles Dickens stories sir, I want some more but you here you have everything you need You'll grow up to become exactly like your parents. You will dress the way they do, just like the government tells you to. No mustache or sideburns for the men. No bobbed hair for the women. You will work in factories, watch four hours of government television daily, march in parades, go to military simulations. Life couldn't be more swell. Until the 80s when a terrible phenomena threaten the entire existence of your world. And that agent infiltrated by the enemy is called... Dallas, the Dynasty. A popular U.S. soap created by CBS. Through scrambled waves, firewalls, and propaganda warnings, it managed to enter the living room of every single Albanian family. What followed? was heated debate in the bread and milk ration lines. How do they manage to wash all that laundry without a washing machine? Did you see there's a phone in every house? I think I counted five, no, six rooms and a pool. What on earth is a pool? Slowly, people started to see a different image of what they perceived to be America, one of leisure and affluence. Nobody was working and nobody was starving. And people wanted in on that deal. They lusted after it. They looked at themselves, standing in bread lines, drinking watered-down milk. They looked at their appearances and they wanted the freedom to be something else. But the breaking point... Who's there? Came when the infamous A House Divided episode aired and the entire country was in uproar trying to find out who shot Jr. They vowed to break through the military defenses of the Cold War and go on the other side to find out. Who shot Jr. The mystery begins to unfold. It took them nine years to do it until the Berlin Wall came down. But at the other side, they sure expected to see 10-gallon cowboy hats, Mustangs, and telephones. They expected to be a part of that dream. The recovery from that dream shattering is what is commonly known as countries in political and economical transition. We grasped for something that wasn't really there. So when people in America ask me, who brought down communism and ushered democracy in my country? Was it Reconomics? Was it the CIA? I answer without the shadow of a doubt. Dallas Dynasty.
0: Thank you, gypsy Yo. Gypsy-O is the author of three poetry collections. We're going to have a link to her world on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Stephanie Fu. When you live to communicate, when the telling of a story is what makes you who you are, there is no greater agony than being cut off from this community. Snap Judgment regular Joel Ben-Izzy He stepped to the snap mic with a story of how he went into isolation to protect the ones he loved.
7: There are times in your life when life just sucks. Like you just need a hug. And it turns out one of those times when you most feel like you need a hug is when you're radioactive. My thyroid in my neck had cancer and had to go and they operate on it. And once they took it out, a couple things happened. One, I was mute. No sound came out of my mouth. But the other thing was that to get the rest of the cancer out, there was a special treatment. Here's the way it works. They have to get rid of any little thyroid tissue remaining in your body. And the way they do that is with a special potion called radioactive iodine. What they do is they make sure you have no thyroid hormone at all in your body, or at least as little as possible. So the thyroid tissue that's in your body gets thirsty. It starts to crave one thing, and that one thing that it craves is iodine. And when your body gets that radioactive iodine, it grabs it. The thyroid tissue sucks it up and dies. That's the plan, at least. Now here was a doctor saying, During that time, when you have no thyroid hormone in your body, you might feel, I don't know, a little sleepy, maybe a little sluggish. But it's just for a couple, three weeks. I nodded, though I didn't quite get it. And it turns out he didn't quite get it either. When he'd said a little slow, maybe a little sluggish, that doesn't quite capture what thyroid hormone does in your body. Thyroid hormone is the stuff that makes you feel alive. If you have none of it, you die. And they needed to get the levels lower, 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 lower before they could give me this radioactive iodine. So here's what happens when you don't have thyroid hormone in your body. It was as though everything was underwater. And that water thickened until it was like everything was in jello. I saw my kids running around back and forth. They seemed to be moving at hyperspeed. In fact, everything did I came to a place where I was tired but I couldn't sleep. I was hot and cold at the same time. I was hungry but I couldn't eat. But mostly I looked around at the world, everything zooming past me thought about my whole life coming apart. And your slow brain goes, wow, this show. doctors say that. Once we give you this radioactive iodine, it's very important that you be absolutely isolated, quarantined, because you have a wife and young children. Yeah, you won't want to go anywhere near them because a single hug is kind of like an x-ray for them and I kept thinking, what is it to drink? A radioactive cocktail. I thought of that scene in that great Hitchcock movie, Suspicion, with Cary Grant. And throughout the movie, we're never sure whether or not he's actually trying to kill his wife. But in one scene, he's walking down a stairway with a platter and a glass of liquid that kind of glows. What is it going to be to drink that? After several weeks of moving steadily slower to the point where I had almost stopped, I was ready. They led me to a room with big refrigerators all around and a Geiger counter on the wall. The doctor pulled out a metal box. From that box a lead container. And from that lead container a tiny plastic cup. It didn't glow. It looked kind of like milky water. But the Geiger counter began to click and beep and buzz and he said, drink it! And I drank it. And he said, now go! And he sent me out a back door, off I went. My wife and I had had a discussion about where I would be quarantined. What we had decided was that the place for me to be was in my office, which is a separate room below my house. Normally a room I really like to go to but now it had felt like a little tiny prison. It was just 72 hours, though, if your brain is like jello. 72 hours alone, no contact, is a long time. And it was at that time, I think, that I reached just a level that made me feel like I was at the bottom of the world. And that is when I smelled it. It's an unmistakable smell. The rain that winter had sent rats into our house, had heard them screwing around, haunting me like nightmares, these things scratching on the walls, and now I could tell one had died inside my office wall. All the anger and the frustration of the cancer and the lost voice, it all rose up at once and I turned to scream and as I screamed nothing came out. but. And I began to pound and pound in this wall where I could tell the rat was coming from. And then with my fingernails, I began to pull the boards off of my wall one at a time, opening up that wall with my fingernails. And behind me, there was a tapping on the glass window. Outside was my wife with my son who was five and my wife was holding my daughter and I could see my daughter's face looking at me and pointing and mouthing the words, What's wrong with daddy? The look on my wife's face as she watched me tear off the walls of my office was a look of terror. But then she gently set my daughter down and she opened the door and came in, and I shook my head, no, no, but she walked right up to me and said, This too shall pass. And then she gave me a big hug. And for just a moment, Everything felt all better. A moment later she walked out and I could see her saying to my daughter, Daddy just needed a hug.
0: Thanks, Joel. To hear more of Joel's stories, check out his website, storypage.com. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu about that time, and I know what you're thinking, that's not enough Snap. Do not worry. Full episodes, movies, stuff, available for your pleasure right now at snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, our handle is snapjudgment.org. The Snap was produced by myself, but never in isolation, never. Hats off to he who must never be disturbed, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Foo, she made me cry this week. Anna Sussman makes me cry every week. Pat Masidi miller cries with me. Jamie the Wolf hates to be alone. Renzo Gorio dances in the dark. Julia DeWitt hears jungle sounds. Will Urbina makes jungle sounds. Did you ever have a party that starts at 8 p.m. 315, there's a knock on the door. Somebody saying they hope they're not late for the festivities. <laughs> Don't kick them out. That's just the corporations for public broadcasting. Big thanks to the CPV. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public and the media in the closet together and counting the 60 to see what happens. Smoochy, smoochy. PRX. Now. You could crash your mail plane, find yourself on a desert island, wish for human contact so badly you engage in long conversations with a volleyball until that volleyball gets a smart mouth and you have to kick it back in the ocean. You could do all of that and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is the